Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of 1 Corinthians. Good morning. Praise the Lord. I love it. I need that, guys. I need a little, you know, if, if, you're, if you're an ameniter out there today, I, I need you, okay? Because we're in a fun passage of Scripture this morning. I'm going to make you blush today, okay? Uh, if you saw my video yesterday, I want to remind you of a few things, but one of them was, hey, as we make our way through 1 Corinthians verse by verse, we come into some territory that, uh, you know, you, you don't talk about it around the dinner table necessarily, uh, but we're going to here this morning. In fact, it's important that we do. Um, this is a necessary word for us, especially in our culture today. Uh, and I hope that what you'll see as we make our way through the second half of 1 Corinthians 6 is that indeed the, the things that Paul deals with here, uh, the sin of sexual immorality, that it has um, a far more pervasive effect on us than maybe what we even give it credit for. And I think we could look to this issue as a major contributor to the issues in our culture today. And so this is, in fact, a very important passage of Scripture, uh, albeit a challenging one. It's good for us to consider it here today. Uh, David Lomas, you may not know that name, but he wrote a book entitled The Truest Thing About You. And he writes this, Identity drives motivation. Motivation drives action, and action drives results. For example, he says, if someone speeds past me at 90 miles per hour on the highway, odds are I won't chase them down and issue a ticket. He says, I don't have an identity that says I am a police officer, so I have no motivation to act. A police officer, on the other hand, does have that identity and therefore has the motivation to take action, chase down the speeder, and get results, issue a ticket. He says, every action we take in life has a sense of identity behind it. How we see ourselves matters. How do you see yourself today? It's a question we're not often asked, making it oftentimes difficult to answer. How do you see yourself? Do you know who you are? Or maybe who you were and who you're becoming? Do you know who you belong to? Or perhaps you're one of those who fancy yourselves to be your own, your own man, continuing to live in such delusions. The answer to these questions fuels much of our identity. And it is identity that the church in Corinth was continuing to struggle with. Cheat for a moment here and give you the last verse in this chapter. Verse 20, Paul writes, For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's where we hopefully will arrive at today is an understanding of or perhaps a reminder that we, Christian, belong to Jesus. And that should form your identity. But what we'll see at the church in Corinth and largely amongst the church today is that there is an identity crisis. Let's go ahead and pick up today at verse 9. We considered verses 9 and 10 last week, but I think it's important we look to them again, especially as we set the stage for what 
Paul will cover today. Paul writes in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you were with us last week for our study, or you've been tracking, you know a little bit of what Paul has been covering, especially here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, then you might be inclined to look at verses 9 and 10 and almost seem to look at this as if it's a bit of a departure from what Paul has been communicating thus far. And again, we are in 1 Corinthians 6. I don't think I mentioned that this morning. Hopefully you're ready for that. But if you're still looking, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, picking up in verse 9. And so as you look at this, especially verses 9 and 10, you might be inclined to go, wait a second, how, how did we get here? Why did Paul all of a sudden go from dealing with lawsuits within the community of Christ, within the church, now to talking about uh, homosexuals and, and, and various aspects of fornication? It's almost like he shifted gears a bit, you might think. But we'll see in a moment that this actually fits well into Paul's argument. But I want for us first to camp out here for a moment and consider these two verses on their own before we make the connection. I want us to do that because it's sad how so many throughout the years have taken these verses and they've twisted them in various ways to their own liking. There are those who will look at this list of sins and want to pick and choose which ones to focus on, which ones not to, or find ways to explain certain ones away. For example, most often what we find in this particular passage is that there are those who want to make allowances in today's culture for homosexuality and they struggle with this verse for obvious reason. So they take the word homosexual, which is the Greek word malakoi, and it literally means effeminate, but it was often used as a word to describe both male prostitutes and in some cases, boys who were forced into such an occupation. Remember, the Greco-Roman culture of the day was quite evil. So folks will look at this and say, see, the Bible is only condemning this heinous practice, not a loving, mutual relationship between two consenting males. But those who do this entirely ignore the next example that follows, which is translated here in the New King James as sodomite, and it is the Greek word arsenikoitis, which literally speaks of a male who lies with a male as a female. It very clearly addresses the very general practice of homosexuality, not some specific variation. It speaks directly of homosexuality. Unless we think that females are off the hook, don't forget that Paul addresses this in Romans 1.27. So despite the exegetical gymnastics that some have tried to perform, you cannot get around this. So then we see that homosexuality is listed clearly as a sin in the Bible. But, in case you want to just take that sound bite, 
and then think that I'm only focusing on this issue and vilifying those who look to endorse such a sinful practice, there are just as egregious of issues on the other side. What do I mean by that? Well, David Guzik writes, some who so strongly denounce homosexuals are guilty of other sins on this list. Can fornicators or adulterers or the covetous or drunkards rightly condemn homosexuals? The answer would be, of course not. Guzik writes, Christians err when they excuse homosexuality and deny that it is sin, but they also err just as badly when they single out as a sin that God is somehow uniquely angry with. When we elevate it as something other and different and worse. Friends, this is exactly what Paul has been dealing with over the last couple of chapters, and that is that we must, as a church, be willing to look inward. We must deal with our own sin in-house equally, if not more so, than the sin of those outside the church who often have an even lesser understanding of what sin is. How many unbelievers have you won to Christ by condemning their sin? Whereas, how many have you won by grace and love when, yes, you still deal with sin, but from the perspective of one whose own sin has been covered? There's a major difference. You see, we have been given, Christian, the ministry of reconciliation. Paul will write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verses 19 through 21, he'll write, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. For the believer, for you, Christian, this has become your role. To be an ambassador, a representative, someone who is about the work of facilitating the reconciliation that you yourself have experienced. But are you living in that reconciliation? As one who has been reconciled. Paul says in verse 11, And such were some of you. You see, sometimes it is necessary, albeit unfortunate, but necessary nonetheless, that a Christian be reminded that they too are a sinner saved by grace. Paul says, Christian, you were this way once too. But praise God, you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says, you were one way, but then Jesus came and changed your life. Amen? Now the tenses of these verbs in the Greek, this is wonderful, it speaks of a completed action. That this is what has been accomplished. Christian, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. It's done. And then because of His grace, He's still at work changing you and transforming you. Paul is saying, and, and, and here's what happens. Because this is what has been accomplished for the believer, 
This then becomes the point that Paul is going after, really saying, look, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. But the question becomes, have they? Have the old things passed away? This brings us back really to Paul's original question. What was it that prompted this line of reasoning for Paul? How did we go from suing the brethren to homosexuals and fornicators? Look back at verse 8. Paul says, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. You see, in many respects, Paul was challenging these Corinthian believers on their behavior and subtly questioning whether they were believers at all because they weren't acting like it. Paul knew that this was having an effect on the unsaved in Corinth because of the negative reputation of the church. You see, this man who was guilty of taking his brethren to court was probably thinking, it isn't that bad. Look at all these other sins. Look at all of the things that other people are doing. But Paul wants him to understand your behavior is a problem because you're a representative of Christ. You're a professing believer, but you're numbering yourself amongst the unrighteous. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Friends, we deceive ourselves today by justifying our sin and not taking seriously who it is that we now belong to. The church in Corinth was justifying sin. Are we? Paul says, don't be deceived. We need to take our sin seriously. All of it. Now, are those sins that Paul listed there in verses 9 and 10, if you're guilty of one of those, does that mean you won't go to heaven? Well, the answer would be no. Not necessarily. Paul in that list describes those who are characterized by such sin. The original language suggests that it was their pattern. They were in an ongoing pattern of sinful and willful disobedience. But, the question becomes, does just one occasional act of adultery or fornication or sexual immorality matter to God? Must it be a pattern to matter? Do I get to excuse it if it's simply occasional? No. We've got to deal with it. It matters. And for Paul... If you're okay with sin in the church in any capacity as they were, and you're okay with cheating your own brother or sister or taking them to court, the question becomes, and Paul's concern, what path of sinful behavior are you setting yourself on? Where's this going to go? Paul says, you need to remember who you are, Christian. And so from here then, he sets out in consideration of the Corinthians' ongoing sinful pattern, specifically then addressing the kind of sin that has a way of eroding our understanding of who we are. 
This is where this goes. This is why Paul goes down this path of sexual immorality. Yes, he wants to address it, but it absolutely connects back to the beginning and and really everything that he's been sharing with the Corinthian church because of what they're involved in and the sin they're involved in. It is beginning to erode their understanding of who they are. If you're taking notes today, write this down. Sexual sin messes with our identity. Sexual sin messes with our identity. And I think, or I hope, you'll understand more of why that is in a moment. From here, Paul writes in verse 12, he says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now, verse 12 can be a confusing statement on the heels of what Paul said in verses 9 and 10. If there were all these things that are not fitting for a Christian, how can Paul say that all things are lawful for him, right? Two things are at play here. First, for the born-again Christian, there is freedom. There is liberty in Christ. Because we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, the fact is there is great freedom. We have been rescued from the law of works. Praise God. It's no longer about what we do to earn God's favor, but who we are in Christ. Moreover, because of this freedom from the law, much of what was formerly a source of bondage is no more. Especially in the area of things like food and drink. Paul dealt with this in Romans as well as in Colossians. In Colossians, in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. You see, for for many, there was such religiosity and legalism related to uh, their pursuit of religion, their pursuit of right standing with God, that in Christ, because the fact that they were saved through faith, by grace, saved by grace through faith, they were able to let go of some of these things. There in Romans, Paul's ready. He says, look, eat essentially what you want to eat. Don't let anybody judge you over these matters. But the Corinthians, the problem is they had taken this liberty, this idea of all things are lawful for me, and they were abusing it. It was no longer liberty, but in fact they had brought themselves under a new form of bondage once again because their desires had mastered them. And they were excusing it saying, well, I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want to do, which is cheap grace if we continue in sin and just say, well, His grace covers it. This is what was happening in Corinth, and this becomes Paul's secondary point here. This phrase, all things are lawful, it wasn't just something that Paul was saying or a truth that's rooted in the Gospel. In Corinth, it had become something that they were saying regularly. Hey, all things are lawful for me. It was popularized in the Corinthian culture. And it was becoming a form of what we know as antinomianism. Antinomianism or anti-law. It was a rejection of the law to such a degree that they rejected the very notion of obedience even as legalistic. So for Christians in this church, the idea of being obedient to Christ in any particular area was like... What in the world? That's, we're freed from the law. I don't need to be obedient. I don't need to do these things. And what they weren't considering then was whether such liberty exercised was actually even profitable. Many states today have legalized a variety of things. You're familiar with some of this. 
Just because it's been legalized, does it mean that such liberty is actually good for you? No. The answer would be no. First service was a resounding no on that, okay? I'm a little concerned now, guys. Out in New Mexico, I go to New Mexico often for the 10th Hour Project. In the past few years out in New Mexico, they've legalized all, all sorts of things. And, and now there's billboards everywhere addressing not just the sale of these things, but what's come after this. Hey, heads up, if you're using these legal substances, here's all the things you probably shouldn't do because now you're a danger to the rest of society. Wonderful. I'm glad we did that. Freedom, right? It's foolishness. And so, th so th they haven't really considered, as Paul is saying here, it, maybe there's freedom here. Maybe you can argue for that, but is it helpful? Is it beneficial? Is it good for you? He continues this thought process here, looking at the fact that the Corinthian church was convincing themselves by looking at things purely from an animalistic perspective that if I want it, I can have it. Verse 13, Paul says, foods for the stomach and stomach for foods. This is what he's, he, he, he's getting at here. That the Corinthians were treating many things, sex included, as merely an appetite to be satisfied and not as a gift to be cherished. Like hunger, just because we have certain normal desires that are given by God at creation does not mean that we must give in to them and always satisfy them. Warren Wearsby says, sensuality is to sex what gluttony is to eating. Both are sinful and both bring disastrous consequences. They were flaunting their so-called freedoms, but in their carelessness, they had simply put themselves into bondage to something else. They had failed to remember who it is that they belonged to and the fact that their body was not their own. Paul continues, but God will destroy both it and them. Speaking here of food for the stomach and stomach for food. Paul continues, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Paul here is saying the basic physical appetites that governed the Corinthians... That, that this idea of, of dependency on physical appetite and need for food, this will one day be redeemed. This will one day be dealt with, okay? Now here's the thing. We'll eat food in heaven. Praise God. Right? I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be an awesome spread on a regular basis. But we won't be motivated by our hunger the way that we are now. These things will be dealt with. However, our bodies, differently than that, Paul says, are for the Lord and will be raised up in the resurrection. Glorified, yes, but our bodies matter. Paul's saying there's something different about your body. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Christian, do you know that the believer's body is a member of Christ? This is one of those incredible truths that we can't fully wrap our minds around it. And I know I say that a lot, but there's a lot of things that are just beyond knowing that are pretty cool when we think about it. We are a part of the body of Christ. Each of us is joined together. Romans 12, verse 5. So we being many are one 
body in Christ and individually members of one another. Listen, do you understand that for the believers that are gathered here today and gathered elsewhere throughout this state and country and around the world, that when believers come together, there is something very special. Whether we're together or we're not together, there's a difference there. But that connection, that bond, is something special that's been accomplished by Christ. And no, we can't fully understand it, but it's what the Word tells us. So then, if we consider the truth that we are joined to Christ, that we have, been be- that we have become part of His body, and that we do so corporately and individually, then how can we be joined to Christ and joined to sin at the same time? We attempt to. But we know, even if we believe the lies of the enemy that this isn't the case, we know that this will affect both our relationship with Him and with one another. So often we try to convince ourselves that such sin can just be tucked away, kept separate, kept secret. But the Lord doesn't know and certainly the body doesn't know. But the Lord knows and the body experiences the effects of it, whether they know it or not. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Paul says, certainly not. And this was, in fact, one of the liberties that the Corinthians were taking. And what we must realize is that as a believer, whatever sin we engage in, we're taking Jesus with us. If He indwells you, if the Spirit of the living God indwells you, Christian, then He goes with you everywhere. And we must understand once again that our body is not our own. It belongs to Him. Paul says, verse 16, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Is Paul saying here that if one is joined to a prostitute, that there is now a marriage that takes place? No, not in the sense of a committed relationship, but in terms of the level of intimacy, yes. Paul goes back here to the order of creation in Genesis 2, verse 24, and says, in effect, sex is more than physical. It's spiritual. This whole idea of Sexual immorality, it speaks, more, it speaks of more than just harlotry here in Corinth. It speaks of all kinds of sexual immorality. It speaks of sex outside of marriage. It speaks of pornography. That's the very word in the Greek here. It's porneia from which we get our word pornography. And it is a spiritual sin, not just a physical sin, and it's eating away at the body of Christ. Wearsby writes this, he says, sex outside of marriage is like a man robbing a bank. He gets something, but it's not his, and he'll pay for it one day. On the other hand, sex within marriage can be like a person putting money into the bank. There's safety, security, and he'll collect dividends. Amen. (laughs) Friends, Paul is pleading with the Corinthians to consider who they are, and who they belong to. And the same challenge has been issued throughout the ages. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. He he asks the question, what do you want? 
You want what the Lord has for you? It's far better. And if you're a believer, then you've been joined with him. So almost going back to the beginning of the chapter, as he starts to deal with the lawsuits there, he says, how dare you? Join him with a harlot. Do you understand what you have in Christ? Do you know what you have in him? Do you know who you are? What you've become? We considered this passage not that long ago. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. We looked at this from the standpoint of unity within the body, especially in the context of communion. But in John 17, verses 20 through 23, here we see Jesus once again. He is praying. This is a prayer of Jesus himself. And he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Wow. Once again, we don't fully grasp exactly how such unity is accomplished, but we look at this and we say, that's my Savior, Jesus, praying for us, praying for all believers, and saying that we are one with Him as He is with the Father. That's what we gain in Christ. Oneness with Him. Tim Chester writes, it's a sign of God's own giving of Himself to us that we might be one with Him. The Bible says marriage and sex are a picture of Christ's relationship with His people. At the cross, Christ gave Himself in love to save people, to take the judgment that we deserve, to cleanse us and make us beautiful. And He commits Himself to us totally. He's made a covenant like a marriage covenant to love us and care for us. And so this oneness that Paul is speaking of, and it's, it's in the context here of, 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 of something special, Christian, that we know and that we enjoy, but that we take for granted. And there's an assault on it today. And Paul says in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. He says, run from it. Run. When you see it take off, get out of there. He says, this is so important. And as we're unpacking it here again, just remembering that, and we'll get to this in a moment, that it's this type of sin that does such damage to us and is doing such damage to the body of Christ. And Paul is saying to them, and by the Spirit to us, run. Run from it. Do you remember the story of Joseph when he was in Potiphar's house? He's working there. He's doing his thing. And Potiphar's wife is like regularly coming on to him, right? Pursuing him. And he's thinking, hey, just get, just get back. I don't want anything to do with that. And she keeps coming at him. And there's one day where it's just him and her there. That's a bad situation. And he's on to it. And he's like, oh, no. And she comes to him again. She says, come. You know, come into my bedroom. And he's like, I can't do this. And we look at this situation and we know, looking at it through our cultural lens and, and, and knowing there's probably got to be some people that would even be looking at Joseph and saying, go for it, man. Go for it. Dude, your family, 
They left you for dead. They sold you into slavery. You had a bad lot, man, a bad hand. Now you're here in this house, and, and she wants to be with you, and, and you've earned it. You deserve it. Nobody's ever going to know. Go for it. Indulge. And he had, he had every opportunity to convince himself that this was okay. But what does he do? Boom, he's out of there. She even grabs his robe, and it rips off of him, and he's like, I don't care, I'm going. Taking off. He says, far be it. That I would do this thing and sin against my Lord. Because you see, Joseph here had an understanding of what Paul is trying to communicate that every sin, this is the second part of verse 18, every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. You see, what we dealt with earlier was oftentimes this. The way in which the church can seek to sort of put sins on, a, on this spectrum and to say, well, this sin, yeah, we're not even really deal with this. But this sin over here, you better believe it. We're going to condemn it. And what Paul wants us to understand is they're all the same. In terms of, this, in, in terms of whether or not a sin is a big deal or not, they're, they're all sin. But there is a difference amongst them as it pertains to their effect on us you understand and so here paul is saying look if it's sexual sin it's a sin against your own body what he's communicating is that sexual sin is the most serious sin a person can commit against his own body and that's why it's so detrimental here's why because it affects and involves all of you the whole person John Corson writes, because we are made in the image of a triune God, we are comprised of three parts as well. Body, soul, and spirit. The body relates to the physical world. The soul is one's essence, one's personality, and relates to people. And then the spirit relates to God and will live eternally. Thus, each time one engages in immoral activity, a part of his soul is permanently and irreplaceably forfeited. The tragedy then is that the one who continues to live in promiscuity becomes less and less of a person as a piece of his or her soul is stripped away with each encounter. Sexual immorality in all its forms is a sin against yourself. Tim Chester writes further of this saying, the point is the Bible is talking about more than just the physical stuff that we're made from. It's not just talking about bone and muscle. By body, it means our total selves, who we are, our identity. You know, the word unite that's used here in verse 16 means to bind, to glue, or to cement. Chester writes, you're glued together, body, against yourself, against your identity. If giving yourself in sex is not done in the context of lifelong commitment as designed by God, the result is deep pain. It messes with you in a profound way. Chester writes of this saying, PVA glue, I don't know if there's any woodworkers in here familiar with this, but PVA glue is, a, is stronger than wood. If you glue two bits of wood together and then pull them apart, it's not the glue that breaks, but the wood. It splinters. And that's what happens whenever 
there's intimacy outside of marriage, you splinter your soul. But when that physical oneness goes together with a whole person and whole life oneness, the result is deep wholeness and fulfillment. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. It's an amazing gift from God. It's, it's no wonder many in the church of Corinth had forgotten who they were. It's no wonder there was an identity crisis that was raging. Because there was a crisis of sin against the soul, and it was creating amnesia for individuals who were made in the image of God and created for intimate relationship with Him. And I wonder, with the identity crisis that we're facing in our own culture today, has it not come in the wake of a sexual revolution? Look at what, we're, what we see today happening in, in, in the number of believers who are so confused about who they are and their identity in Christ. And so then we must be reminded again of the truth of what God has done for us and who we are in Him. And so Paul writes of this, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Oh, if we could learn this. That our lives are not our own. In the world, our culture tries to tell us anything but this. Your life is yours. Do, with it, do what you want. Have it your way. Have it now. You earned it. You deserve it. Please yourself. Pursue your pleasures. But this isn't the way. This isn't what God says. What we know is that verse 20, we were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Most translations end there. Some add, and in your spirit, which are God's. That's not in the original manuscripts. That was added by an excited scribe who said, we can't simply glorify God in our body. It's got to be in the spirit, which belongs to God as well. But the fact is, if we glorify God in our body, the Spirit will follow. And this is the second time here in this letter that Paul has made such a reference related to our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. The, and, and this is true both corporately as the church, we together are the temple of the Spirit, but also individually. Eugene Peterson writes, Didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place? The place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole thing. He owns all of you. Do you know that? If you are a Christian and you've surrendered your life to Him, then He owns you. God owns you. But do you know what comes with that? Do you know what God threw in with the purchase? Are you familiar with that? Do you know that you are owned by the one who owns it all? Think about that for a moment. Kind of brings into perspective then any of those moments where we sort of fear that we may not get what we need or think we need. You're owned by one who owns it all. That's why He can say to you that He will give to you exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that you can ask, think, or imagine. You can't even imagine it. You think you've got a good imagination? No. 
You can't even begin to comprehend what it is that he has for you. So then, if we understand this rightly, if we know, okay, that me giving my life to Christ means that I'm giving all of myself to him, he owns me, my life is not my own, but along with that, he says, but I own it all, so I'm going to take great care of you, I'm going to give you exactly what you need, even when you don't know that you need it, I'll take care of you, I'll see you through this entire process all the way to the end, well then, with that, does our call to be a living sacrifice really seem so sacrificial anymore? Or do we continue to convince ourselves that it's just too hard? I know it's a difficult thing because the flesh is strong. But when we rightly understand who He is and what He's done and what He will do for us, it ought to be more of one of those situations where we just say, there's the altar. Man, I'm throwing myself on it. Let's go. Because what He has for me is better. Romans 14.7, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. Despite what you may want to think, you are not your own. You were purchased, redeemed, and you've gone from slavery not to freedom, but slavery to covenant relationship, just like the Israelites as they were brought out of Egypt into covenant with him. No man is an island, as it said. Thus, the conduct of individual members also affects the spiritual life of the entire church. These things matter. These things are important. And Paul wanted these Corinthian believers to take that seriously and to remember who they were and who they belonged to, but to know what comes with that. Christian, believer and unbeliever alike, do you know that the grace of God can change your life? Do you know that? Paul said to them, such were some of you. But you're different now. Is this true for you? Are you different? Hey, listen, we're, on, we're all in this process of sanctification, right? The reality is we are saved, we're being saved, we will be saved. God is with us through that process. And if you're like me, yes, you find yourself sometimes looking at your life and reflecting and realizing, man, I still do some stupid things. Lord, why did I do that? And you know, like, okay, I'm still in this process, and sometimes you think, Lord, you could speed this up a little bit. Because I know when I first got saved, there were certain things in my life that were just, boom, gone. And I was like, praise the Lord, that was a miracle. And people that were discipling were like, yes, it was. That was supernatural. And now there's other things that I'm like, Lord, I've really been working at this. Why? Why? What is wrong with me? But here's the awesome thing about that process of sanctification. Is that while I recognize that I'm not yet the man that he's created me to be, I know that I'm no longer the man that I was. He's changed me. This is grace. And so Paul reminds us we belong to the God who made us, to the Son who redeemed us, into the Spirit that indwells us and seals us. And the Spirit wants us to evaluate, am I, am I living in light of that truth? Moreover, do we understand that because we are all members of the body, that we also belong to one another and our sin affects one another? So then as hard as it is, it's right for us to deal with that sin. 
to take these things seriously. And rather than giving ourselves to things outside of His design that erode our very identity, let's remind one another of who we are in Him and what we have in Him. Let's remember the price that was paid for us and the demonstration of love that was shown to us. It wasn't free. He gave His life for you and for me. What a wonderful thing that we can remind people, especially when the enemy seeks to come in and, 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 and whisper those lies of condemnation, of shame. And we can remind each other, hey, are you in Christ? Yes. You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You're in Him now. When our perfect Father looks at you, He doesn't see all of those things. He sees His Son, Jesus, and His blood shed for you that covers you. That's who you are. Don't believe those lies anymore. But also because of what He's done, because He literally laid down His life for us, then let's take that seriously and go, Lord, I, I don't want to make a mockery of that. Lord, I don't, I don't want to continue in the very thing that You died to rescue me from. And so be willing to say, Lord, free me from this. To recognize that, Lord, I know that these, these things that maybe have a hold on me, Lord, they're destroying me. Manipulating and, 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 and messing with, with how I see myself and how I see others. And Lord, I don't want that. I just want You. And so, Lord, deliver me from this. Take that to Him. But be serious with it. If you need to confess it, confess it. Go to an elder. Come to me. Go to a brother or sister, wherever's appropriate, and say, look, I don't want this in my life anymore because I know that it's having an effect on me and it's having an effect on those around me. And let's be willing to love one another and not condemn somebody over, well, it's this sin, so we're going to call you out in this, but we're going to go ahead and just push this one aside. No, let's be the body of Christ and take these things seriously so that we can enjoy all that God has for us in this life and the one to come. Amen? I'll close this morning with Paul's words to the Colossians that he gives in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. He says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. What a wonderful truth. Your life is hidden in Him. That's who God sees. He sees His Son. And when Christ appears, we'll be there with Him. Amen? What a wonderful promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning, Lord. Your Word which, by the Spirit, Lord, challenges us pushes us, Lord. We thank You for it and we ask that by Your Spirit You continue to bring understanding that, Lord, we receive what You have for us, Lord, as difficult as it is sometimes, but to see, Lord, that You call us to, to more. And Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who may be experiencing aspects of, of shame or condemnation because of especially sexual sin in their lives. I pray, Lord, that today... If that's you, you just surrender that to the Lord. And that you would know and understand that it's serious and that it is having an effect on you, but that His love covers it. His grace covers it. And so surrender it to Him. 
continue in it no more. Be willing to say, Jesus, I don't want this in my life anymore. I believe, Lord, that you are better. That what you have for me is better. Lord, to be owned by you is to be owned by the one who owns it all. And forgive us, Lord, for the times when we look at just the the, the fake things in this world, Lord. And And we chase after them thinking that they'll satisfy a desire. Lord, we're foolish in that way. So often we do it, but Lord, we know that you are better. And so, Lord, give us a hunger and a thirst for more of you, not the things of this world. Lord, help us to be a people who take our sin seriously. Not to dwell on it. Not to put ourselves in prisons of our own making, thinking that we're just we're too far beyond your grace. But to take it seriously, to confess it, to surrender it, and to walk in victory. Lord, do that work amongst us here today. Lord, we recognize that you bought us. You died for us, Lord. You gave your life for us. May we receive that. And in return, give our lives to you. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you for our time together here this morning. Pray, Lord, that it's been pleasing to you and that it will bear much fruit for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week. So make sure that you are subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.